When Jesus was surrounded by his disciples, he told them, when you pray, you should pray like this. Would you join us in that prayer this morning? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. My hope is that this weekend is filled with joy. As we celebrate a holiday together, perhaps share food, we don't always eat. But I was reflecting this morning as I was thinking about weekends like this. Often filled with joy and celebration, as I'm sure some of you, like I see family that has traveled into town. Maybe some of you have new people here that you haven't seen in a while. Even for myself, I'd just like to point out my dad and his wife are here with us this weekend. So give them a big Canadian welcome. Um, grateful to have them this weekend. But also reflecting on what days like this mean to those of us that have lost. Chairs at the table that perhaps might never be filled again. And so know that your church is praying for you this weekend. For those of us that can't yet move on, nor should we move on. But would the memories of those who have gone past Live in the spirit of what weekends like this remind us, to be thankful. Thankful for the model that they lived, for the example that they were, and for the life that is still carried out through those that love them dearly. We're going to read our text this morning today, a text that I hope inspires our imagination as I sit in my office each week and prepare, and the weeks that I get the honor to share the word with you. I'm always moved and surprised by how texts that sometimes seem familiar can emerge with new realities and truth. But when I give it the time and patience that the text deserves, something incredible can happen. And so in that spirit, I'm going to invite you to stand this morning as we honor the reading of God's word, and then you'll respond at the end, and the words will be on the screen. Reading from the gospel according to Luke, beginning in chapter 17, verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus asked, were not ten made clean, but the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Get up, go on your way, for your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
Growing up, I developed a great love for theater. A, a trait that I think my mom passed on to me as a core memory of mine growing up is driving around in the car, listening to a CD she had, or probably a cassette at the time, of Andrew Lloyd Webber, a famous composer that many of you may know, best known for works such as Phantom of the Opera, Cats, or Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Later on in my school career, when I was in junior high, I tried out for this play that my school had. I think a moment where I experienced grace for probably the first time in my life, because as looking back, I'm sure there were more qualified options for the part that my teacher gave me. However, it was after that first play that something took root in me. I began to act in school and community productions all the way through my, university, my time in university, trying to see everything that I could at our nearby city theater. And while there are many things I learned during these years, there's something that continues to capture my attention. For those of you that have been to musicals before, there's this thing called an overture, a piece of music that, begins at the, at, that starts at the very beginning, typically an orchestral piece, a time in the production that seeks to draw a tone, bring out themes and emotions that will play a heavy role in what is to come to inspire an imagination that when what we see in front of us is there, that we would look back and be ready to receive all that is offered. I remember that moment when I sat there with my mom at one of my first productions and my eyes widened when the music began to play. The orchestra swelled. And while there was no movement on the stage and the lights remained low, something was happening to me. For if we thought back to some of our favorite stories, whether in film, television, book, or play, whatever it might be, there's something that draws us in and indicates what we would later experience as we dive into the story. So over the next four weeks, we'll walk through some of these preambles of sorts to a story that's commonly referred to as the Passion, a moment in Jesus' ministry that is climactic, one that would ultimately lead him to the cross the grave, and to be resurrected. But these stories found in chapters 17 and 18 set a tone for what will be experienced later. Stories that are precursors can often be glossed over. When we want to get to the good part, we want to get to the story that we know, the story that makes us feel something, but I would suggest to us today that these stories are equally important, for they seek to set a tone for all that is to come, to reorient our hearts and minds that when the passion comes, that when Christ puts on full display all that the kingdom is, we would have the eyes to see it. We would have the ears to hear that which is in front of us, that we would not be too callous to see what Jesus is actually doing. So we'll seek to explore how these stories reveal the essence of who Jesus is and what he sought to do. And over the next four weeks, as we begin our new teaching series, Restored, We'll ask how this theme of restoration holds a central component to the work that Jesus seeks to do in us and our world. I think we've all heard this cliche, maybe you've heard before, it's not about the journey, it's about, or it's not about the destination, it's about, I gave you the answer, that's not fair, I know. <laughs> but anyone who's been on a long road trip knows that's not always true, right? Many of you who've driven through maybe parts of the country, it feels like it'll never end. <laughs> remember when Michaela and I moved here that journey took a long time and there were parts that were beautiful but parts that felt like 
man, where are we going? I don't know where this is leading. But I think whatever it is, it's these places in between that we, where we aren't yet our, at our intended goal or distracted by the task that awaits us that we realize things we have not perhaps seen before. However we feel about these sort of in-between places, if Pastor Stu was here, he'd call them liminal spaces, one cannot deny it is so often in these sort of places that we see or hear things we have long forgotten. Maybe something we wanted to forget. Pain we didn't realize we still had. Baggage we didn't realize we were still clinging to. It's in this sort of place that we begin our story today. For the text tells us that Jesus is walking, followed by his disciples in a region between Samaria and Galilee, an immediate indication that this place where he is represents one of contention, one of cultural divide, one of disagreement, one of conquest. This is a place stemming back centuries, both the conquest of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, a place that represents the fractured nation of Israel into the broken pieces that we find today in our story. Simply put, Jesus finds himself in a place people probably walked through, for this was a common road people walked, but I would suggest rarely ever stopped in. These places often contain the things we hoped we could continue to ignore in our lives, acting like that one drawer we all have in our kitchen where we shove the things that we don't want to deal with just yet. Many times when we're reading through scripture, we do this often here at Skyview, is we, we, we stumble across artwork that particularly uh, heightens our imagination. Artwork that is people's attempt to interpret and understand the text in their own way. And so I have a piece of art like I'd like to share with you today from a 19th century painter, Jacques Tussaud. I don't know if I said that name. Sarah, did I get that? Or bilingual Tussaud. Okay, I got it. A French painter from the 19th century. Paints this image of this story that I'd like to share with you today, just to heighten our imagination. What's alarming to me about this painting is that we see three kind of groups of characters. We see these 10 lepers, we see Jesus, and we see the disciples. Any good artist would tell you that the first step to understanding art is looking to where people are looking, or maybe where they're not looking. We see Jesus' eyes focused on these lepers. But the disciples seem rather distracted. Consumed maybe with the journey, we could presume Jerusalem being right in front of them, that they're almost there at the place they want to be. And so this, what is obvious here is that this is a disruption from what they had hoped this journey would look like. This has caused them to pause, causing them to face things that they probably had seen before but didn't want to face again. And Jesus stops them in a moment to reveal something to them. We'll move on from that. What seems like a simple act of compassion to the modern reader, I would suggest to us is something much more. For Jesus stops to address the problem that presumably some have seen but often ignored. But what he models here actually harkens our imagination all the way back to the book of Leviticus. I know your favorite book to read through when you're reading your one-year Bible plan, right? Leviticus, actually, it's a shame that we get caught up in the meticulous detail because a story that could not be more rich pointing towards this redemption that God envisions for the world. 
But anyway, it hearkens our attention all the way back to Leviticus 13, a chapter that outlines a process of purification for those that had been stricken with leprosy. His disciples would have known what Jesus was doing because they were good students of the Torah. For the Torah listed practices that implemented for two main reasons. First, they were to keep the overall community healthy. And second, they were practices that worked to eventually bring all those who were infected back into the neighborhood. In other words, there was never an intention that those who were sick would be removed permanently, but simply removed so that the overall health and well-being of all those present, this might sound a little familiar for us in the last couple of years as we got familiar with practices and protocols. For these communal protocols were meant to point to something, point towards this idea that community, while severed at times, was not intended to be severed. For if someone was to be found sick, they were to isolate, sometimes on the outskirts of their village. But the path to cleansing or being made well included isolation, examination of the priest, the burning of clothes, the shaving of hair, etc., all dependent on the severity or prolonged nature of the disease. All one thing is clear in this. This disease was not meant to be the end. Things that would sever communities, that would separate relationship, that would distract people from the work that God was doing was never intended to be the end. And while this process of purification could last a long time, there was always a future kept in mind that one who was separated would always be brought back in. That in fact, their absence from the village not only left them as people severed, but left their communities severed. We know this when we sit at our dinner tables and we reflect on both who is there but both also who is not. That both those who are removed from the community but also the community itself feels a pain when a relationship is broken. So with this ritual in mind, we remember that this story is not just a unique moment but is a reflection back to the vision that God always had for the world. But there is one key difference that I would like to suggest to us this morning. The story tells us that Jesus sent these people to the priests for examination, a signal that Jesus has seen them ready for healing as something other than a group of lepers. And here's the difference. Jesus sees these people not for who they are, but sees them for all that they could be. Jesus sees them not for their shortcomings, their illness, or that which makes them separate, but he sees them for what he knows they could be. He knows that they can be ones healed from affliction, free to re-enter relationships that had once been severed. And I wonder for us today, if when looking at places in our world that are severed, we are quickly led to identify that which makes us broken, rather than the vision that God has for our world. I think it's most pronounced on days, weekends like this, in holidays where we recognize division that exists among families, neighborhoods, communities, countries. All over the world there seems to be brokenness, and we can so quickly, like the disciples, first and foremost identify the things that are broken, but what Jesus does here in this in-between space, faced with the thing that he would, others would rather ignore, calls these people healed. 
sends these people to the priest indicating that not, they are not valuable based on what is seen in the moment, but based on what they could be. That in turn, Christ looks at our badly broken world, sees it for all that it could be. It is in these in-between spaces that we're faced with things we'd rather forget, decisions from our past, people we'd rather ignore. But it's in these sort of spaces that Christ reveals all that he is. Much like in the work of art that we looked at, these disciples are headed to Jerusalem, the epicenter of their faith, a place that mattered to them most, caught up in their own religious piety and prestige. For they were on mission to do the work they felt like God was calling them to, but in fact, Christ invites them to stop. And I would wonder today if these disciples saw what was unfolding in front of them. But we move on in the story. What's found here is also a literary pattern some would refer to as a priming and a shattering. For Luke is concerned foremost with the salvation of Israel, but not for their own sake, but for the sake of the whole world. This is what God had envisioned from the very beginning, that there would be a people that followed God so closely that others that looked upon them would begin to see that which they could not see. That the way they lived their lives, as we talked about last month, would witness to something bigger than themselves. But to this priming and shattering, the first of this story is intentionally vague, because when we read stories, we all want to read ourselves as the hero, as the center. I want to be the person that wins. I want to be the person that's saved. I want to be the person that everyone focuses on. And so the first half of the story is intentionally vague in the details because Jesus sees 10 people, sends them to the priest, but then in verse 15, it gets exciting because it says that one person realized they were healed. They turned back. They began to praise God with a loud voice. They prostrated themselves at the feet of Jesus. It means they bowed before him affirming his divinity, and they thanked him. This is obviously the hero of the story. This is the one who I want to be. I want to be the good disciple who's at the feet of the rabbi Jesus. And if the story stopped there, I think we could leave with a sense of pride, maybe feeling like we're that person. Because I always lift my hands during music. I'm always the first one down to the altar when the pastor invites us, right? I'm always the first one here and the last one to leave. And in fact, I never miss a Sunday. Maybe caught up in our own sort of religious piety and prestige, much like the disciples on their way to Jerusalem. This story does not end there. In a form of literary irony that shatters all our expectations, the text tells us this, and he was a Samaritan. History would remind us of the intense cultural divide that existed. And those that would have read and heard this story in the Jewish community would have gasped at this moment. For the person leading up to this moment that they wanted to be, all of a sudden was identified to be the person that they could not stand. Identified as a group of people that they had viewed as lost, well beyond the grace of God in their minds 
well beyond anything that God envisioned. Because if God was to transform the world, it was going to be for them, not for those Samaritans. So Luke points this out, that amidst strong cultural divides, there's something powerful revealed. That when we read ourselves into the center of God's story, we quickly put boundaries and limits on the work that God can do. We begin to expect that the healing grace of God is only something that others need, not myself. And if asked for God's input, we would have a long list of people, places, and communities where God should work first. God, you should go to those places, effectively reducing God to some sort of cleaning crew that we send off to do the work that we don't want to do. We can become blinded by our own expectations, failing to consider how stories like this might be bigger than what we can imagine. So I would suggest that this text tells us two things. First, that we are all in need of healing, not just those with whom we might disagree. The revelation in the story indicts those who sought the healing of Jesus, but nothing more. The nine who headed to the religious epicenter of the faith in Jerusalem, never to return to the feet of the one who healed them. You know, it's also said in this cleansing ritual that two rams and one ewe lamb were to be offered as sacrifice. However, in the case of poverty, in the cases where those who needed cleansing could not provide for themselves, a lamb was to be provided. Jesus' behavior here, as a precursor to the passion, a moment in which he would offer himself for all, reminds each and every one of us of our desperate need for Christ's grace in our lives. How quickly can we assume that the grace that God offers is only needed out there because we have perhaps arrived. We have perhaps gone through the gauntlet, not in need of continued transformation. But this unconventional disciple, this Samaritan who finds themselves at the feet of Jesus reminds us that God's transforming grace is boundless. Something we can fail to see if our eyes are always fixed on Jerusalem. Fixed on ourselves at the center of the story. This story ends with the one, the Samaritan, returning to the feet of Jesus, and Jesus tells him this, get up, go on your way, for your faith has made you well. The original language here is direct, for the words get up reflect a sort of resurrection, arising to a new way of life, a precursor for the resurrection that is to come chapters later. And the words Jesus uses for made well is the same language used for salvation. So what Jesus is really saying here is this. He looks at this man who has returned after being healed and says, resurrect. Rise to a new way of life, for your faith has revealed to you a way of living that will not fail you, but will make you the person that I have always intended you to be. This text tells us of 10 people who are healed, but only one of them who is saved. And the salvation reflects the ongoing, sanctifying work that Christ wants to do in each of us.
a work that seeks to continually disrupt our expectations, to so easily put boundaries upon God's grace, our perceptions that keep our eyes focused on the goal rather than the disruptions that perhaps are happening all around us. This restoration is discovering the way back to Jesus. So if I could say anything to you this morning, so what's modeled in the faith of this Samaritan is a continual return to the feet of Jesus. That even after we are healed, even after we have experienced that which Christ can offer, the invitation remains. These altars stand here as moments of remembrance, of moments in our lives where perhaps we gave it all. We asked for the transforming healing of God in our lives. I've heard some of your stories. I've laughed and cried with you as we've reflected on the moments in time when God changed our lives forever. But these altars fail in their function if they simply become places where we remember, but never places we revisit. For this disciple continually comes back to the feet. And when we come to the feet, we do not approach the one who sees us first for our infirmity, for our poverty, and for our sin. We approach the feet of the one who sees us for all that we could be. I'm going to invite the band to come forward, and we'll close this morning with a song. But I'd like to say that one more time. That when we approach the feet of Jesus, perhaps there is a fear and trepidation a fear that we might approach one who will see us first and foremost as the ones in need, first and foremost as those stricken with sin, poverty, and infirmity. This story tells us one thing clearly, is that when Jesus sees these people who others had written off, he sees them for all that they could be. When we continually bring ourselves back to Jesus' feet, we bring them back to the feet of one who loves, who sees us, and intends for us to live as stories of this redemptive work of God, to live as we were always intended, and to stand up to resurrect, to renew, to a way of life that seeks restoration, not just for ourselves, but for all that is broken. As we'll reflect over the next four weeks, being restored is discovering the way back to Jesus for when we rise up to this new way of life. We find one who has already begun the work ahead of us. And we meet one who will always bring it to completion. Yet one who humbly invites us to be a part of it. And this morning, for that I am grateful. Grateful that the one who does the work also invites me to be a part. So this story models a life of one who has responded to the invitation of Jesus, not simply to be healed, but to be saved. Not simply to be given, but to give. Not simply to receive, but to share. We pray this morning that God would give us the eyes to see the constant and ever-present call, to live as people that envision a restored world, 
that all that is broken would be made new and whole again.